0: Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we are going to dig deeper into some offhand comments that Steve has made over the past several months worth of episodes. Let's hear one of those comments.
1: The style of storytelling that you know now is almost like second nature to people who've imbibed a million hours of this American life. I'm suspicious suspicious of to begin with. I at first had a reaction to the the rhythms of the storytelling, which were too familiar to me from um, NPR-derived podcasts, and I, I don't like that style of storytelling.
0: Okay, Steve, you have expressed several times that you are not a fan of the quote-unquote This American Life aesthetic. Could you please describe the characteristics of that aesthetic and explain why you do not like it?
1: All right, well, the real answer is this has been, you know, identified as the great, um, age of nonfiction and uh it's been that way in writing for a long time in mean, non books uh, nonfiction articles um you know for 20 25 30 years there's been a kind of new new journalism moment um and uh true narratives have been very popular um over that time additionally um you know uh broadcast on npr this american life has become a, a public radio juggernaut and um Subsequently, Serial and um, S-Town have uh, transferred that juggernaut to podcasting. So across media, you know, it is sort of the great age of nonfiction. Documentary films, you know, true crime, you know, only being the most salacious and probably commercially successful. But I mean, you know, I mean, on and on. I mean, everyone from Michael Moore to whomever. I mean, um, we discuss documentaries with a notable frequency on this show. One I think sober response to the age of nonfiction is um, skepticism, intelligent skepticism uh, about the content in in the following way. They're, they're, at, at anyone who's ever written a nonfiction narrative knows that they come across moments or turning points um, in their narrative or details that if you just sand them a little bit, you know, you just, you just sand them down, you smooth them down and like the joists go together a little better and the story just flows a little bit because what people want out of nonfiction actually is fiction, but that it's true. What they want are the genre rhythms and payoffs of something that's imaginary, but they want to then be able, they love the idea, but it really, how can you believe it really happened? And the question is, when you're doing that sanding, how much do you sand? And at what point does the sanding turn what was true into something that's, in some important respect, untrue? And, you know, I mean, you know, you're, there's always a principle of selection. You always leave certain things out. You always heighten or point up other things. I mean, there are a lot of ways to tell the truth in a way that unfolds dramatically that are essentially really true, you know, or get at what the really true truth of it of the story is i mean storytelling I, I don't think that you can separate out anything from the story that you tell about it uh, you know on um, at the same time i'm not a thoroughgoing postmodernist and i think that there are temptations that come up repeatedly to massage or sand or change or alter or cheat and tell a story in such a way that it's substantially or importantly untrue and what I, what makes me suspicious about this American life is that they've perfected something. I mean, I wouldn't be suspicious of it if they weren't so seductive and so good. I mean, there's scarcely a time when the show comes on when I'm driving around that I don't stick with it and listen to it and get something out of it. It's brilliant. And none of what I'm saying is meant to cast any kind of aspersion on Ira Glass or, or for that matter, in any way indicate that he's not a kind of genius. Um, I think both of those things are really true. I, I admire him, right? But I'm I also just wonder in the great age of nonfiction how many narratives are just convenient and are shaped as much by the expectations of the audience as they are by the actual details. I mean, to me, S-Town was really coming up against a line. I thought a way to tell it was this guy was a martyr to his own loneliness and his own genius, and this genius had no social way to express itself and he reaches out desperately to this npr figure who comes and kind of makes his life a dignified thing by paying attention to it in a way no one really had before at the same time i think a lot of what was probably really monstrous about that person was really toned down or 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 evaded and I, I, you know we've seen instances where it shades over into outright dishonesty i mean john alero was a was also a genius, and he had the genius of the form, but he didn't have the the rigor uh, of the actual reporter or journalist. And and I just wonder in how many instances that are very hard to check up on, someone is is allowing that rigor to really lapse in order to make the story that much better.
0: That is such an interesting critique, because I do think all of the challenges that you describe are present in creating nonfiction that is both true and gripping, but those don't necessarily strike me as particular to This American Life. Dana, I'm curious mm-hmm. about your relationship to the This American Life aesthetic.
2: It's very different than Steve's. I think, I mean, we probably both share some kind of aversion or antipathy to the show. I think mine is much more aesthetic. If I were driving, well, I don't drive, but if I were riding in a car and a and This American Life story came on, I think it would be unlikely that I would be seduced by it. Not impossible. It would depend on the narrator, which isn't always Ira Glass, and it would depend on the content of the story. And I think that two-part Nicole Hannah-Jones reporting about segregation in schools from last year was a great, essential piece of listening from This American Life. But it's that to me. It's just the tone, the tone of voice, the particular style of uh, declamation or enunciation, the kind of well. I think the um, the serial podcast took this even further, but the the intrusion of this sort of casual "we're buddies" address style of address into the traditional you know radio narrative voice. All of those things just feel um, manipulative and overproduced and a little bit cute to me in a way. And I think I got into this in talking about Hi-Fi Nation, the podcast that we recently discussed in a segment here, which I really, really like and have now listened to the entire first season of, and which almost completely steers clear of that that tone, which if I were a good imitator, I would just start talking that way right now and you would know exactly (laughs) what I mean. But it's the sentences that sort of trail conversationally off and, I don't know, just a certain kind of... um, attempted seduction of the listener and and that just rubs me the wrong way and does not seduce me and uh, and I'm not even getting into the truth value factor here although it may yeah. be that that style often goes hand in hand with a certain um you know way of presenting the truth that leaves out details but I haven't dug enough into any of this American life stories to have any specific complaints about their truth value mm-hmm. or lack thereof I can just sure. say that 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 particular vocal style which has been so influential and there's so many I don't know what you'd call them, but you know, sort of public radio DJs who talk in that voice now. Um it just it feels just feels like it's become a tick to me and it drives me nuts. Right. I know what you mean,
0: but I also think we are doing a real disservice to the role that this American life played in the evolution of of broadcasting. Like that voice, that casualness and intimacy, that sense that stories could be found in non-obvious places, that there were stories to tell about individual human lives, the the kind of range of curiosity, the scope of curiosity in the show, all of those things are hugely, hugely admirable. And when that show first debuted, made it sound like nothing else that was on the air at the time. And I think it's almost like um, when you see the original thing that has influenced so many things after it and the original thing feels kind of old and canned and hokey Like, I I get that now that there is a total efflorescence of indie-ish radio and audio of various kinds, of storytelling podcasts, of the moth, of, you know, a whole kind of culture of looking for stories of that kind in different places, like... It feels easier to take the original thing for granted. But it was so radical. It was so radical to not be voice of God, to not be like uh, in Winnetka today, dot, 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 like to just break through that drone of um, of what the, the important people who were broadcast were telling you and make that sound more intimate. Like we are the descendants of that for better or for worse. Like, uh, and And I generally think uh, Slate, in some ways, the informality of, of having people write on the internet with voice and with persona and having a sense of like, oh, no, it's I know Dahlia. It's Dahlia Lithwick, who's at the Supreme Court checking things out for me, not just like Slate reporting from SCOTUS. Oh, yeah. I mean, like- I'm not
2: arguing for bringing <laughs> back the Walter Cronkite authorial voice at all. And I do see how we're the descendants of that. And now I feel like I've been ungrateful to Ira Glass. I'm sorry, Ira Glass. <laughs> but isn't it, I, just, I guess I just mean it's the case that maybe that particular voice has become a new sort of cronkite like uh, source of of imitation like the idea of mm-hmm. a voice an individual voice being introduced into this you know sort of previously authoritative domain of broadcasting is great but but as soon as that becomes another voice that people imitate right it becomes less interesting so maybe I'm talking more mm-hmm. about the imitators of the iroglass style right well and they don't always nail
0: it either and I agree that the shows that they do that are that are it, the the full episode journalistic explorations are my favorite, like the one they did about the patent crisis, the one they did about the financial crisis, like th- those when they pair that kind of storytelling, the one they did about disability, um, when they pair their storytelling chops with real kind of systemic uh, investigative issue policy based storytelling. I think they reached really interesting journalistic heights still. Um, for me, I don't I'm not made cranky by This American Life in the way that Steve and I guess maybe you are, Dana. But I have that response to Radiolab where there's kind of like a mannered casualness that feels highly produced. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, that creates this uncanny valley itchiness where I feel like they're pretending to be idiots to hook us in. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think I remember the mitochondria from science class. Tell me a little bit more. Oh, yeah. No, that in general (laughs) is an approach I can't stand.
2: Guess what? This stuff's actually interesting. I mean, I'm not going to listen to the show if I'm not interested in the content. You don't need to sell it to me so hard.
0: Yeah, like there's a different stripe of studied banter that drives me bananas. And whatever, where wants to mm-hmm. talk? like we our banter isn't studied, but it's performative, right? Like we yeah. there's a fourth imagined person thing, audience thing in this conversation that we do that's different than the way we talk if we're all just at to dinner, even if we're doing a facsimile of that. So I, you know, we shouldn't knock uh, the various ways in which people are casual for an audience, probably.
1: I just want to be totally clear. I'm not accusing them of being chronically dishonest at This American Life. I'm highly confident that they're not. And the way they dealt with the Mike Daisy scandal is, is um, you know, um, you know, evidence that 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 they have a journalistic conscience that they follow quite rigorously. What I want to say is that I I almost it, to kind of marry Dana's point to mine. I mean, there's a suspicion of, that, that gets aroused in me when someone seems to know my inner life and that the, the the kind of inner voice with which I speak and the narrative hopes and fears that, you know, I have on a peer-to-peer basis. And we live in a world in which peer-to-peer, you know, um, is the way in which people persuade and occasionally manipulate you. No one uses, I mean, you know, no one uses the voice of the authoritative, omniscient Walter Cronkite from on high white male authority anymore. That's essentially dead for anyone under the age of 60. You know, and so I'm just saying that that it arouses my suspicion when someone is so good at uh, imitating how I sound or how I wished I sound or feeding me information in a way that makes it completely satisfying to me. My satisfaction and truth satisfaction seem to me to be two categories that don't really overlap and shouldn't really overlap, Um, at least not that seamlessly. That's my only point.
0: Yeah, I think that's a useful clarification, Steve. All right. Well, our feelings about the This American Life voice have now been interrogated. Thank you for your follow-up questions. Thank you so much for being Slate Plus members and for supporting Slate and the journalism that we do and for listening to this bonus segment of our show. We'll talk to you soon.